When I was a child, the Bible was a storybook for me. When we went to Sunday school, the Sunday school teacher would open up, and, and there's some great stories in the Bible. When I got to be about eight or nine years old, especially, I really came to appreciate some of the better stories in the Bible. For instance, there's, there's a story in, the, in uh, the book of Judges where there was a guy who was so fat that when he was assassinated, that the dagger went into his belly and the fat engulfed the handle of the dagger and engulfed the arm of the assassin. Man, for an eight-year-old boy, stories don't get any better than that. (laughs) Then I read another story. There was a man who was fleeing from his enemies. And he went to this lady's tent and said, hide me. And she said, sure. So she, she had him lay down on a table and she covered him with a cloth to hide him from the enemies who were pursuing him. And then when he was hidden and couldn't see her, she took a great big spike and a hammer and drove it through his forehead and nailed it to the table. Boy, I tell you, them are great stories. I don't know why they haven't made any of them into movies. Uh, (laughs) They're wonderful. So the Bible was a a storybook for me. And then as I became a teenager and I went through confirmation class and and started to move out of the storybook area, the Bible became a theology book for me. Now, I grew up in a Bible church. Um, pastor was from Dallas Theological Seminary and was a strong dispensationalist, and so I, I learned dispensational theology. And then we learned ecclesiology and eschatology and bibliology and Christology and all them ologies. Because the Bible was no longer a storybook, it was now a a theology book. And then I went off to Bible college. And in Bible college, we took courses, of course, on the Bible. And the Bible then became a textbook for me. We had to memorize the life of Jesus and be able to write down in chronicle chronological order, every event in Jesus' life, for instance. And then we had classes on Romans and classes on Hebrews, and and the Bible became a textbook that you went to, to to learn about things. And then when I left Bible college, I became a pastor. And then the Bible became a resource book for me. It's the place I went to to study for my sermons, for my Sunday school lessons, for my Wednesday night Bible study, for my Thursday morning Bible study. And, And it was a resource book. But it wasn't until I'd been pastoring for quite a few years that I came to see the Bible for what God intended it to be. Not a storybook, Not a theology book, not a textbook, not a resource book. But God gave us this book to be a portal into the heart and mind of God. 
That's the purpose of this book. I don't think I could ever go back to looking at this book as a storybook or a theology book or a textbook or a resource book again. In fact, to use it for any of those things only would, me, would, would just be anathema. It would be sin. Now, I'm not saying if you shouldn't use it for a textbook in, in Bible college or whatever, but it's so much more. When I was young, we had a visiting pastor come to our church, and he challenged the young people in the church. And he says, I challenge you to read a chapter in the Bible every single day. And if you'll take on that challenge, raise your hand. So I rose my hand. I will read a chapter a day in the Bible. And then time went by, and I remembered that promise, and I kept that promise. And, but there were some nights, maybe I would get home late after a date or something, and it'd be midnight or one or something, and I crawl into bed, and I'm dog tired, and I go, oh, fooey, I forgot to read my chapter. You know? So, okay, out on the light, okay, let's see. That's a chapter. Okay, I can go to bed now. Didn't do much for me, did it? Someone challenged me then to read through the Bible in a year. I'm not saying that's bad, but I had a problem with that. And the problem was God kept stopping me before I got to finish the, the reading for the day. I would be reading along and all of a sudden it would be like, wow, God was talking to me. And, and what God wanted me to do is he wanted me to stop and meditate and, and minister to me from that verse of scripture. And, and I'd say, oh, no, God, I've got to do my six chapters or I'm going to get behind in my reading through the Bible in a year program. And so many times I just keep right on going. I have a little bit different philosophy on reading the Bible now. When I saw it as a portal into the heart and the mind of God, this is where we meet God. This is where we talk with God. I, can, I cannot see this just as a book of information anymore. If you were here last week, I was talking about how different Karen and I are. And one of the things I mentioned is that when I talk, it's for information. When she talks, it's for relationship building. <clears throat> now, I'll have to qualify that. That's kind of the way it used to be. We've kind of rubbed off on each other, okay? When God talks, it's not just for information. It's for relationship building. That's what he wants to do. People have a habit of pigeonholing, cubbyholing, what is it, pigeonholing or cubbyholing? Pigeonholing? Yeah, Annie's always kept me straight. I'll go with her. Pigeonholing. If you want to pigeonhole me today, there is a term that is used for people like me. 
people who believe that the Holy Spirit actually speaks to us through his word, and the word is mystic. I am a mystic. Now you can go and and you can read online or in books about mystics, and basically there are two types of mystics. The first type of mystic hears voices and thinks they're from God. Okay, those type of mystics are dangerous. I am not that type of a mystic. Okay? The second type of mystic is someone who hears an inaudible voice. It's not an out loud voice. It's something that comes from deep within and hears that inaudible voice of God through the word of God. Because so many of our Christian songs come from the word of God, many times God speaks to us through music, through Christian songs, because that is part of the word of God many times as it comes. When somebody tells me that they think God wants them to do something that they've heard from God, be it a type 1 or a type 2 mystic, I always ask them the question, and that is, show me the scripture. If you believe God is leading you, if you believe God has talked to you, show me the scripture. Tell me how God is directing you through the word of God. I believe more than anything else, God wants us to have an intimate, close, personal relationship with us. And in order to do that, he has given us his permanently indwelling Holy Spirit, and he has given us the written word of God. How close, you might ask, does God want to have this relationship? And so I thought what we'd do is is we just start going through the Bible and look at some of the relationships that God has had with people in the past. So let's begin. Let's go to Genesis chapter 3, verse 8. Let's look at Adam and Eve. Genesis 3, 8. First part of the verse says this. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he walked in the garden in the cool of the day. What kind of relationship did God have with Adam and Eve? It says that in the cool of the day, at the end of the day, God would come down to the Garden of Eden in a human form and he would walk with them and he would talk with them. You've probably heard the old song, I come to the garden alone, while the dew is still on the ground, and he walks with me, and he talks with me. That's the relationship that Adam and Eve had with God. Now, why did he come at the end of the day? Was it too hot in the middle of the day? Because it says it came in the cool of the day. It could be. But remember, Adam and Eve had to till the ground during the day? That was not part of the curse. The curse was weeds. 
they still had to do the tilling. You know, they had, still had to plow the field and plant the seed and water. You know, they still had responsibilities in the garden there. And so God would come in the evening after they had finished their work in the garden. And he would walk and he would talk and, and they would hear an audible voice. I wonder what he talked about. Maybe he talked about what he had done before he created him in Adam and Eve. I mean, God is eternal. Are we the first thing he's ever done in all of eternity? Oh. You know, depending upon how much time you put between creation and the fall, God could have told them many things that we don't know anything about today. He certainly told them about creation. Do you know, I think mostly he just built a relationship with Adam and Eve. It wasn't about information. It was about relationship. Can we have a relationship like that, like God had with Adam and Eve? I would suggest to you that we can have a closer, more intimate, personal relationship with that. They had to wait till the end of the day to talk with God. We can talk with God throughout the day. We don't have to wait to the end of the day when our work is done. We don't have to wait for God to come down to talk to us because we've got that Holy Spirit living within us all the time. We can talk with God. So I think we've got a, we, can, we have the potential, let me put it that way, we have the potential for a closer relationship with God than Adam and Eve had. Let's move on. Let's go to Genesis chapter 6, verse 9. Genesis chapter 6, verse 9. <clears throat> Noah was a righteous man, blameless among the people of his time, and he walked faithfully with God. Notice it says that Noah walked faithfully with God. Now this is different from God walking on earth in the cool of the evening with Adam and Eve. This is really talking about a relationship. He walked faithfully. They had, a, they had a close relationship. He had an obedient relationship. He had a submissive relationship with God. And then after years and years and years of walking faithfully with God, one day God says, Noah, I want you to build an ark. God was very specific. He laid out the dimensions he laid out how many stories there were to be, how many floors on the ark. He was very specific. But he didn't give Noah any superpowers to do it. Noah had to go out and cut the wood, shape it, Nail it, peg it, whatever they did back then. Get the pitch, put it on it. You know, it took Noah over 100 years to build that thing. 
God didn't give him any kind of superpower. Here's where I think we have it better than Noah. God comes to us through his word, and he says, Cal, this is what I want you to do. And then he puts within me by his Holy Spirit the desire and the supernatural power to do it. Remember in Philippians, for it is God who works in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. If God asks me to do something, he's going to give me the power to do it. I ride the bus to work. (laughs) How about that? Uh, You work for the bus company, you probably ought to, you know. And the other day, somebody got on the bus and was talking with me. And he said, you know, the will of God will never lead you where the grace of God won't keep you. And we're talking about our surgery. And I said, that's very, very true. But you know, it even goes beyond that. The will of God will never lead you where the power of God is not available to you to accomplish what he's leading you to do. See, I think we got a better relationship with God or the potential for a better relationship with God than Noah had. Let's go on to Abraham, Genesis chapter 12. Abraham, Genesis 12, 3. The Lord had said to Abram, go from your country, your people, and your father's household to a land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. What a wonderful relationship Abraham had with God. God promised some wonderful things to Abraham. He promised to bless him. He promised to to bless the, the world through him, that he'd be a blessing to others. He promised that he would make his name great. We we find out later on that not only did God give him these promises of, of greatness, but we read that God blessed him with cattle and God blessed him with silver and gold. So God gave Abraham some wonderful promises and then, and then God made him very rich. Abraham became the father of many nations. He also became very famous. Can we have a relationship with God today that will make us rich and famous? Well, I'm not a health and wealth gospel kind of guy. I'm not a name it and claim it, blab it and grab it, however you want to you state it. But you know, I think God can make us very rich and very famous but it's according to his definition of rich and famous. See, we have been blessed with all the heavenly riches in Christ Jesus. Our riches are not temporal. Our our riches are not going to be left behind when we die someday. We're laying up treasures in heaven. God is making us rich. And man, if we only had some promises from God like Abraham had, 
Oh, we do, don't we? <laughs> don't we have a wealth of promises as well? He may not have promised us you know, health, wealth, and prosperity on earth, but we've got a lot of promises in the Word of God. You know what? Rather than being famous in the eyes of man, we can become famous in the eyes of God. And I would rather be famous in the eyes of God than the eyes of man any day. I believe our relationship with God has the potential of bringing us greater profit, eternal profit, than it did Abraham. Moving on, Moses, Exodus chapter 33. Oh, I love this verse. Exodus 33, 11. Man, this is one of these verses where I, you know, I, I was reading, just reading through Scripture one day, and, and, and God put a brick wall at the end of this verse. He said, you're not going any further than this verse today. In fact, we might stick on this verse for quite a while. Exodus 33, 11. The Lord would speak to Moses face to face as one speaks to a friend. Then Moses would return to the camp. I remember, I remember reading that verse that day. And I remember God just grabbing my heart. And I remember thinking, wow, wouldn't that be wonderful to have a relationship with God like that? To speak face to face, but, it, but more than face to face, to speak as one speaks to a friend. Speaks of intimacy. Speaks of a, of a personal God having a personal relationship with a human being. And I remember I meditated on this verse, I think for several days, and I said to God, God, whatever it takes, that's the kind of relationship I want to have with you. I didn't realize whatever it takes <laughs> was a mouthful. And it took a lot. It cost a lot. It did. But that is how badly I wanted it. To talk with God like I would talk to a good friend, the give and the take and the back and the forth and the intimate and the honesty, but most of all, friendly. My devotions kind of took a, a turn after that. And really my book, Sometimes We Suffer, is, is the result of some of those times with God, those intimate, friendly, face-to-face, -face, talking with a friend, time with God. But you know, then the verse has to go and finish. And it says, then Moses would return to the camp. To me, those are sad words. Here you are talking face to face with God as one friend talks to another friend and, and, and then you've got to leave it and you've, you've got to go away and, and, and Moses returned to the camp. You see, these conversations with God 
only took place on the mountaintop. And then Moses had to return to the camp and deal with the children of Israel. Conversation ended. I believe we've got something much better today than that. We don't have to go to a mountaintop to have a mountaintop experience with God. It's available daily to us. Because we have the permanently indwelling Holy Spirit, we've got the written word of God. Had I never mentioned that before, those two elements? We can keep the conversation going on and on and on. It doesn't have to end. One more I want, illustration I want to look at from the Old Testament. That's King David found in 2 Samuel 12, 13. 2 Samuel 12, 13. And I just picked this one verse out, uh, out of the context, and you've got to know the whole context to understand what's going on here. The verse simply says this, Then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Hopefully you know the context there. This has to do with King David's sin with Bathsheba. And not only the adultery, but also the murder then of Bathsheba's husband. And David was about to experience the discipline of God. Effective discipline can only come from someone very close to you. Hebrews talks about it as something that only a loving, caring parent can do. And God loved David, and their relationship was so deep that God chastened David for his sin. A very close relationship also includes chastening for their sin. Discipline and suffering, I think, are two of the biggest overlooked grace gifts of God. Grace gifts we'd rather not have, but are very necessary. And again, I believe that God's method of dealing with us today is far better than the one David found himself under. You see, David had to wait for a prophet of God to come to him and convict him of a sin. But because our relationship with the Lord is so much closer, we can be convicted immediately because we have the Holy Word of God and the Holy Spirit of God immediately upon sin. The Holy Spirit can use the Word of God to bring conviction to us. If we listen to the Holy Spirit, then we don't need another individual to come and tell us about our sin. If we don't listen to God, then maybe he will have to use somebody. I believe that the potential for our relationship with God today is better than at any other time in history. 
Our potential for our intimate relationship with God is greater than anybody's ever had the opportunity to have before the cross. So let's look at our relationship with God. There are many terms to describe our relationship with God. Let's look at three of them real quickly here, very quickly. Romans 1.1. The first term that it's used to speak of our relationship with God is the term servant or slave. In Romans 1.1, Paul says, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God. Paul uses the term servant or bondservant, which can be translated slave, to speak of an aspect of a relationship with Christ. And what it's speaking of here is total submission. A slave has to be totally subservient to his master. A good servant does whatever his, his master asks him or tells him to do. And so this term slave speaks of a relationship that God wants to have with us whereby we are submissive to his will. That's a very important part of the relationship. I've done a little marriage counseling in my life, a lot more than I wish I ever had to have done. And I found out something. In a marriage where the husband and wife believes that the marriage is a 50-50 relationship, there's always problems. Because somebody, if not both of them, are going to feel like they're not getting their 50%. They're giving 51% and only getting 49 back. Or I'm doing the bulk of the work, I'm doing 80%, they're only getting 20. This may sound crazy, but I suggest that marriage be 100 to 0 If each person goes into marriage believing it's their job to give 100%, they're never going to get disappointed because they're always going to get back better than zero. God wants a 100 to 0 percent ratio in our relationship with him. He wants us to be totally submissive to whatever he asks us to do. If we go into this relationship saying, okay, God, 50% of the time I'm going to do your will and 50% of the time I'm going to do my will, not going to work out very well. So the first term is the term servant or slave, which, which, which speaks of submission, total submission. The next term, let's go over to Romans 8.15. Romans 8.15 says, The spirit you received does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. The, the word Abba 
is, is simply a term for father, but it's, it, is, it is the Greek term that is that of the most endearment. It, it, if, we, if I had to find a word maybe that corresponded to that, it might be the word daddy. There, there's some endearment to the word in da- daddy than just dad or father. He says, our relationship is not that of a slave so that we live in fear. Again, look at the, the context. We are slaves, but it doesn't result in fear. But rather, through the Spirit, we have been adopted as sons. I think what he's saying here is, lest anyone misunderstand, our relationship with God goes way beyond that of a servant and a master to that of a father and a son. I have a son. I know what that relationship is like. I was a son. I know what that relationship is like. Galatians 4, chapter 6. We have the parallel to Romans 8, 15. It says, because you are his sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. A son's position is better than that of a slave. A son gets the love and the care from the father and the inheritance of what the father gives him. So yes, we're slaves, but even greater than slaves, we're we're sons and daughters. And then the third one, this one Pastor John did a little talk about already. Over in John 15, 15. John 15, 15. Jesus says, I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I have called you friends. For everything that I learned from my father, I have made known to you. I'm a friend of God. He calls me friend. Notice the context of what is, what's the result of being a friend of God. It says, I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I've called you friends for or because, here's the purpose, everything that I learned from my father I've made known to you. Friends like to talk with each other. Now, I understand that Generally speaking, women might be better at this than some of us men folk are. But they like to tell their friends everything. I shudder to think. No, I'm not even going to go there. We're a friend, and God wants to tell us everything. He wants to reveal everything. He wants us to know everything. Everything there is to know, know everything that has to do with our relationship with God. He wants to reveal that to us. Of all the words that speak of our relationship with God, I like the word friend best. Like when I read the verse that Moses talked with God face to face 
as one friend does with another. God has called us friends so that he can reveal his plans and his purpose and his will to us. Because God is our friend, he seeks intimacy with us. I was talking a few years back with a man, and he told me that when he was young, he went to Sunday school and he went to church. And he learned, oh, a lot about the Bible. In fact, he told me that he felt he knew all of the important doctrines, all of the facts, all of the events recorded in Scripture. And, and he, he knew a lot about the Bible. And therefore, he concluded that he no longer needed to read the Bible or go to church because he basically knew it all. And I got to thinking, like I mentioned last week, Karen and I, we've been married 46 years. I pretty much know all there is to know about this woman. Okay? So for this man to say that, that he, he didn't need to go to church, he didn't need to read his Bible because he knew pretty much everything there was to know would be like me saying to Karen, I don't need to talk to you anymore because I know everything about you. Do we just talk to exchange information or do we build relationships? For many years, I think I did a disservice to this book because it was just a source of information for me. It wasn't about building a relationship with God. It was a storybook. It was a doctrinal book. It was a textbook. It was a resource book. It was anything but a portal into the presence of God. God wants an ongoing, growing, intimate, personal relationship with us. And he's given us everything we need to have it. The Holy Spirit of God and the Holy Word of God. Now it's up to us to choose how deep and how intimate that relationship is going to be. Next week, I'm going to do part two of this sermon. Part two, part two has to do with what does that look like and how do I do that? For today, we'll just leave it at God desires with all of his heart to have a personal intimate, loving relationship with us. Let's not stop short. Let's not miss out on the point of it all. Let's pray.